Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thank you to our recent donors for supporting this independent podcast, our weekly labor of love. Art needs patrons, and we are grateful for you. So thanks to our newest Patreon supporters, Jessica and Caroline. And thanks to our longtime supporters, Heather, Rob, Margarita, and Marty. And finally, hello to our new donors through thebittersweetlife.net, Christy and Devaraj. If you love this show, forego a coffee or a movie and help pay for it. We're at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. Or make a quick PayPal donation at thebittersweetlife.net. You can also support the show by telling your friends about it. Don't keep us a secret. Share the show. Share it far and wide. Support on Patreon at the $50 level comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious, helping travelers plan their dream trip to Italy. That's at italybeyondtheobvious.com. Today on the show, we travel to Bali. And one quick note before we go, in the middle of this interview, a guy starts teaching a class really loudly next door to my guest, Mike Shaw. Don't worry, we eventually pause the interview to let that man finish whatever he was telling the world. But if it sounds at some points in this interview like there's a television on in the background, it's other people learning. So let's just enjoy it. Let's go! Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Mike Shaw. He is a former PR guy with 11 years experience in Beijing, and he's now the CEO and managing editor of Migration Media and the host of the podcast Migratory Patterns. And he's also newly moved to Bali. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. This is quite a thrill. Yeah, so... I want to kind of begin with you back in Beijing. You spend 12 years living in Beijing. What were you doing there and how did you get there? My expat origin story is pretty simple. I don't know why I went. I heard a voice in my head one day that just said, we're moving to China. And that's literally what happened. I woke up, heard the voice. And it was my voice, so it wasn't like the devil speaking to me, <laughs> like burn it down or anything. But but it said that. And me being the lazy procrastinator that I am, it took me two and a half years. But I, I told people right away that I wanted to move. And uh, in two years, I was in Beijing. And when I was there, I actually had no plan. I moved in time for the Olympics, which was a good time to go. Man, was it a good time to go. I was in time for the Olympics. And then after the Olympics was over... I kind of was like, all right, I saved up a bunch of money, but I need to find a job. And as luck would have it, this email chain group that I was in back when, you know, Yahoo groups was a thing for ultimate for people like Ultimate Frisbee, someone in that group posted a message that they were leaving town, we're having a going away party. And by the way, my wife is leaving her job. So if anyone knows someone who would like this job, it's available. And it was a job at a news distribution firm, a PR company. And... I said, hey, I went to J school for a while and uh, I can do that. So I applied and I got the job and I didn't really have to hunt for the job. The job found me. And I stayed at that job for all 11, year, 11, 11 years I was in Beijing. It wasn't actually a job that took you there. It was that you wanted to move to China. I uh, wanted to move to China, was called to move to China. It's very weird. But yes, I got there. And I have to say, one of the things I discovered kind of about the universe, if you want to get metaphysical, is that 
if you're on the right path, you'll just see all of the things that fit and you'll you'll kind of understand, oh, this is where I fit. And it was like that in Beijing almost from day one. Just the people that I met, the place that I picked to live just happened to be exactly where my job ended up being. I mean, so many things just fit perfectly. And I got all these affirmations like, oh, you're in the right place. My personality meshed with the place. I met friends so easily. I had by the time I moved to Beijing, I hadn't made any new friends in probably a decade in Boston. And by the time I'd been in Beijing for two months, I had a, a circle of twenty people that we were all becoming fast friends. So the city really embraced me, and I realized very quickly, oh, I'm supposed to do this. Like I'm supposed to live overseas, and that was quite a revelation for me because before then, people used to call me Mr. Boston. I mean, I was such a local guy. <laughs> my, sometimes my friends still can't believe it that I'm, I'm over here. But is it possible that you're just a local guy wherever you go, Mike? You are Mr. Boston. You are Mr. Beijing. Hey, well, you know, that's another thing I think I've discovered. I mean, I, I call myself, <laughs> I was talking to my wife. She's a teacher, and her job theoretically might take us around to different places every couple few years, you know, depending on whether or not she likes a place or we want to move. And it's one of the great things about being a, an international school teacher is that you can really bounce around a lot. And I, we were talking about this change in our life, the moving to Bali and the potential for moving to other places. Where might we go next? And I said, geez, I'm kind of a serial monogamist with, with places I live. I mean, I, I lived on my own in Boston for 10 years and I lived in Beijing for 11. Am I really going to be OK with going to a place for just two or three years? <laughs> I don't know. Wow, that's interesting. So as you know from listening to The Bittersweet Life, Tiffany felt like Rome was calling her name from a long, long time before, from when she was a kid. Was Beijing like that for you? Uh, no, but I didn't. I wasn't going in quite blind. I'd worked for an airline in the late 90s and early aughts, right up until the September 11th attacks. And I made it through the first round of, of layoffs after the attacks because all the airlines kind of cratered. And the second round was coming, and I saw the writing on the wall, and I got out of there. But before that, I was flying around the world for free because I had these flight benefits. So I ended up going to China twice before I even thought about. So I was familiar with the fact that it existed. I had a friend who lived there and then did business and went back and forth a lot. But I'd gone to lots of places, and I didn't have any notion that I would ever move anywhere. But China just kind of popped up. Since you spent 12 years in China, as a U.S. citizen over here, China's in the news all the time because our president's in a current trade war with China. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say are the most common misconceptions that people have about China from what you've observed from actually living there and what you hear from your friends back in Boston? So I will say the first thing has to do with anyone who moves anywhere and the idea of foreignness. I actually had a conversation a little bit about this last night with some expats that I met. And my grandmother, and this is not a really a dig on her. This is just kind of a, a signal about ignorance and just the inability to think outside of your home context, which is inherent in everybody around the world, mostly. Um, when I was talking about moving, she would have these conversations with me and she said something to the effect of, you know, what will you do for money while you're there? And I said, well, I'll just get a job. And she said, well, what will you do with your pay? And I said, I'll put it in a bank. <laughs> like, you know, this, this idea that I was moving to Beijing, it's literally just another city. Yes, the culture is different, but it's a city. It has roads and it has cars and people work and, have, you know, go to the 
bar on the weekends, and it's the same as anywhere, just different. I know that sounds a little weird, but that idea that you can go somewhere else and it really just becomes real life, I think is the thing that people don't understand when they think about any country. It's really just the same as where you live. It's just different. <laughs> and and the other thing that really gets me, and this is kind of just a shorthand for the whole trade war stuff, is that China's stealing our jobs. And that is such garbage. China doesn't steal our jobs. We give them our jobs. We, we willingly export because we buy at Walmart and we want cheaper prices. It's like if you want to keep the American manufacturing industry up and going, you want to keep people employed, well, you know, be prepared to pay uh, $70 for a sweatshirt. There's actually a company in North Carolina that is determined to make American sweatshirts and jeans and to pay a living wage with health care and benefits. It costs for every pair of jeans, $75. And that's just what it is. And can you have your higher standard of living without paying the price for it? Of course you can, but you have to export your pollution, you have to export your workplace standards, you have to export the salaries to a place where those things don't cost as much. We've been doing that in America within our own borders for generations. I mean, I grew up in New England. We are littered with mill towns, all these beautiful cities. Lowell, Massachusetts is this, the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. There are all these towns that are built up. Journalists, if you cover the, the presidential election, go to New Hampshire, and, and Manchester is a mill town. It used to be all these big factories that would process textiles and stuff. But what happened after the Civil War? All of that stuff went down to the American South. Why? Because labor was cheaper. You know, there were all these newly freed slaves and they needed workers and, and all these impoverished people decimated by war. So the lower, the lower uh, working standards, the lower wages were in the American South. And it went there. And then fast forward like another 50, 60 years, we started shipping it over to Japan and Taiwan. And it's just this is a natural evolution. And China is just a convenient trope. It's just a convenient you know, thing to hold up to say they're the ones to blame, not you for not buying American. Did you have a bunch of local friends or were you mostly expatting? The group of friends I made, I, there were some Chinese friends. I would say it was maybe 60-40. I had a pretty good mix and I learned so much about Chinese culture from having Chinese friends. I mean, I, I, I really look at it as an education. It's helped me to understand that there are cultural differences even if I go to a new place like I am now and I don't know what all the social cues are, I recognize that they are social cues. Oh, they do this thing and that's different. And I recognize that there's a difference and that it, it means something, even if I don't know what it means yet. Well, what do you recognize from China? Give us a few examples. So one of the things that I really like about China is they use one hand to count to 10. So we have one, two, three, four, five, which is simple. You just use five fingers. Six looks like the kind of a, the, the Hawaiian kind of cowabunga symbol. Yeah, hang 10. Hang 10. Yeah. There's another for seven, eight, nine, and 10. And it's super convenient because when you're in a bar, let me tell you, and you can't yell and you're holding a drink and you want to order more and you have to confirm the price, you can use one hand to do it. <laughs> that was how I learned this signal. There's other things like they don't do hugging. They don't stand in lines. There's a lot of stuff that, if you understand that China is a famine culture, so 5,000 years of civilization, but there's cyclical famine. So if there's never enough for everybody, no one is ever going to line up in orderly fashion. There's always going to be a rush to get whatever you want. And that just translates into, well, at the bank, there's not a line that you stand in. You take a number. 
at the bus stop, they have to put up metal guardrails to force people to stand in line because they won't otherwise. There's no respect for personal space because you can't. Everything's so crowded. There just is no concept of personal space. So there's, there's these different ways of living and different ways of interacting, you know, on a person-to-person level that you notice and you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's different from home. I want to move in a different direction. So it's pretty obvious to me that you really loved your time in Beijing. You felt called there, you acclimated there, you felt like you had a purpose there. Why did you decide to move away from there? So you're right when you say I, I acclimated there. Uh, I actually would tell people, where's your Beijing Ren? Uh, I'm a Beijinger. People would say, Chinese people would say, where are you from? I would say, where's your Beijing Ren? I am a Beijinger. And we would laugh because, you know, I'm not Chinese. But I really started to feel that way after a certain amount of time. Maybe it's kind of like New York. People in New York say you live there for a certain amount of time, you're from there. It's kind of similar to Beijing. The majority of the population of Beijing is from somewhere else. So I'd been in Beijing by the time I left for longer than probably half the Chinese people who were there. (laughs) Uh, Why did we decide to leave? Well, I don't want to say it was because of my wife, but it was because of my wife. (laughs) (laughs) So it's because you got married is your problem. (laughs) My problem, yeah. Um, No, it's the great blessing of my life is that I'm with my best friend and the woman of my dreams. But, And I mean that. But, you know, I'd been there for 11 years. I was very comfortable. And she's a teacher. When the time came when she could explore for other opportunities – it was just natural to look at what else is out there. And for her professionally in Beijing, there was only a couple of places that would really kind of meet her standards for what she wanted to do. And we just kind of collaborated on searching for what else is out there, what other options are there. We just stumbled across Bali kind of by accident. We decided to take a vacation here, and it turns out there's some really good schools here, and she fell in love with one of them. And it was like, okay, let's go to Bali. It was it was almost as fast of a decision as my I'll move to China decision. It was like we came down here on a little vacation. She saw the school one day, and it was like, I think this is where we want to go. And, you know, six months later, we were here. Was she in Beijing as long as you? Did you meet each other there? Oh, my God, our story. So, no, she came to Beijing. Uh, she was there for five years. She came to Beijing for us, but we had met just before I moved to China. So it's kind of like a summer camp romance we had. She's from Seattle, and she was driving across America trying to find where she wanted to live next. She'd graduated from college a few years before, and she was like, where do I want to go now? Let's drive and find out. And uh, did kind of the great American road trip on her own. And she arrived in Boston the week before the 4th of July. I was scheduled to leave for Beijing on August 8th, or August 7th, rather. And I'm a nerd. I have a lot of useless knowledge in my head, and I like to show it off. So I used to give history tours of downtown Boston. And she came on one of my tours, and I met her. We had some fun. We made some mutual friends. And when she left town to go to her next destination, I said, oh, I really like that girl. So I sent her a text message, kind of said, hey, you want to go to this concert in this town that was halfway between where she went to next and Boston? And she said, yeah. So we met up. It was kind of our first date. And uh, I just fell madly in love with her. But, of course, I was leaving six weeks later. You know, you meet that girl, that girl you meet one, that one time who just steals your heart, and it's kind of like this thing that you know it's temporary. Well, I got to marry that girl that I met that time, which is awesome. And you didn't even have to put your plans on hold. Amazing. 
I almost did. I mean, I, it was that profound when I met her. But we moved on. I led my life and she led her life. But it just so happened I'd broken up with a girlfriend I'd been with for a while. She broke up with a boyfriend. And I was visiting the U.S. and she was living in New Zealand. But she saw I was there on Facebook. And she said, hey, I'm quitting my job and I'm coming back to the U.S. You're going to be there. And we talked. And I said, if you want to try and get together, which I think we should do, you'd have to come to Beijing because I'm not quite done there yet. And she said, OK, I'll do that. And she showed up. And <laughs> eight months later, she proposed to me. And uh, a year after that, we were married. So Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, it was she I, I told her, you came to Beijing for us. Next one's on you. Wherever you want to go, I'm just going. So are you a go and never look back kind of guy? You said that you guys went to Bali and just decided, you know, this is the next place. Was it that easy to decide? It was that easy to decide. It's so funny. I think some people will talk to me or talk about what I did or what, a, what my wife did, or they'll say, oh, my God, that's so brave. And I really don't see it that way. I just see it as that I just decided to turn left instead of turning right. It's like people make those kinds of decisions every day. And yes, the choice results in all these consequences and a massive shift in context and everything. But the decision points don't feel profound. They feel very simple. But then when the consequences come, when the shift actually actualizes, <laughs> then it starts to feel like, oh, my God, what have we done? And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's been a really difficult transition, much more fraught than we had, we had expected. So how far in are you? How long ago did you move? Three months now. Okay. So it's pretty new. When yeah. you say that it's been so fraught, it's been so difficult, what are those things? What's coming up? Well, we when we talked on my podcast, uh, I had kind of jokingly said you were a trailing spouse when you went to Rome. I am a trailing spouse now. I don't have a job. <laughs> I'm following my wife for her job. I have to find a way to structure my day that is completely self-motivated. I am not good at self-motivation. I've been struggling to develop a routine. I have my business, which is great. I have the podcast that I'm working on, which is fantastic, and it's super helpful. But it's not the same as having to wake up every day at a certain time, having to go into an office, having to report to someone because you have been assigned something. There is a comfort in that. Freedom is great, but boundaries can be freeing as well. And I've been struggling with that. I've also been struggling with missing China way more than I thought I would. I mean, I miss Boston when I moved, but I did not miss it as much as I miss Beijing. And I think it's because I had it figured out. Like Beijing was like a project I completed. I went to Beijing knowing nothing, not a lick of Chinese, knowing one person, having no idea how to even get around the city. And by the time I left, I could do anything. I had the place wired. I understood the bureaucracy. I understood, I understood the, the shorthands that all the expats have. I mean, I, I figured it out. And now I've left it behind. So it feels like this project that I completed that I've left and I don't know what to do with myself now. <laughs> I've got this thing. Look at this thing I built and no one can see it except me. It's frustrating. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Couldn't Bali be the same way or are you thinking that Bali is temporary? Does it feel like this is a stint rather than the next 12 years of your life? We have a feeling that it's not going to be the next 12 years, but we're, we're honestly open. I mean, we, we signed a two-year lease. We've got an option for a third. We're guaranteed to be here at least two years, probably a third, unless something crazy happens. 
and we are open to more. I mean, we really like it here. Just the lifestyle is nice. The food is great. The cost of living is super cheap. Um, there's so many positives. I mean, it's so much more healthy. Um, I mean, I've already lost 10 kilos since I've been here. It's great. And it's got a lot going for it. But last night, I went out to this event, and it was the first time I'd gone out to an event where there were grown-ups there. And I say that because there are so many people who have been attracted to Bali in the last few years. There's this kind of trope of the influencer or the YouTuber or the travel blogger who comes to Bali to be a digital nomad because they've been drawn to it. It's a thing now. And there are very few grown-ups. It's hard to meet the grown-ups who kind of are just living life. In Beijing, we have – there's a subset of people who are just living in Beijing. There's probably about 15,000 of us. So there were – I used to – not there anymore. But there are about 15,000 of them. Those are the people who are just living their lives. They're not on contract. They're not on seasonal work. They're just living there. And I haven't found those people because those are my people. I'm not here for six months. We're here for at least two or three years, and we want to engage with people kind of at our life stage. And for me, that's been difficult. It's easier for my wife because she works at a school with other grownups, you know, and she's met their spouses and their partners, and she's met some other people affiliated with the school. I haven't really been able to meet a lot of people because it's hard. So that's been difficult. You know, when I got to Beijing, I hit the ground running, and here... It's been very self-focused, which has been good in some ways, but it's difficult. I find myself pining for the safety and comfort of knowing everything about the place I'm in. Yeah. So would you say that at the root of it all, are you lonely? Is that the root? Yes. It's not that you feel incompetent there because you don't know what's going on yet. No. Here's the thing. Before Before I moved to Bali, I talked a lot about I know how to do this. I did the China thing. I went to a place that was completely foreign. I figured it out, and I learned how to live a life there. So I know how to do this. The problem is I haven't had quite had the space to do it, and transit's not very good here. Everyone is super spread out. There's no natural gathering points, and the expat community is so different here. Even the professionals that I've met here, the, the, the grown-ups per se, are all – either in the process of massively shifting their work or their career, or they have done that. So it's a very interesting group of people that are here that I've, that I've been discovering. And I don't know that I'm that person. I don't know that I fit in that paradigm, but it's interesting. And I feel like I'm just starting to dip my toe into it. And I'm hopeful. Tiffany and my friend Suzanne and, and so many other people go to Bali just to learn yoga. And that's their big formative experience. And then they take that yoga experience and they move on. I don't know that you consider those people expats per se because they're coming and going for a class. You know, they're almost more like tourists, but extended tourists maybe. Does it feel like it has this much more transitory flow? Yeah. My first impression, this is just a first impression, the whole digital nomad culture, this is one of their hubs. And because of that, the people who are drawn here are people who are wanting to go from place to place. So you'll get people who Bali's on their rotation. Even before I moved here, a guy I knew from Beijing kind of shot me a message that, hey, I go to Bali every year. And he's here for like a month or two every year. So he's got like three or four places he goes. I have a friend visiting tomorrow. She's a digital nomad. She just did, I think, six months in Europe. And now she's going to do here for like a month. And then she's going to go to Taiwan where her, quote, home base is. So there's a lot of people who do rotations. 
that is a different kind of community. People aren't settling down and raising families. There are some, but it's not as pronounced and it's not as concentrated. So my first impression is that it's a different kind of expat. And I've also been trying to get away from the word expat. I know you've talked about this a lot. For myself, I try to always work in the word migrant when I say expat. So I'll always say expats or migrants or something like that. Try to I'm trying to equate the two. Mm-hmm. And it's like a verbal tick. <laughs> Why are you doing that, do you think? As, as an editor, as a professional editor, I like to be very precise. And technically, there is no such thing as an expat. There is no legal definition for expat. The UN defines anyone who lives outside the country of that they hold a passport for is an international migrant. And the only legal distinction within that group are refugees. And they are, they are legally defined by international treaties. Everyone else... You're an international migrant. Doesn't matter your social strata. Doesn't matter if you're going north to south, east to west. If you're rich, you're poor. You are an international migrant. That's what we are. Expat is what we label mostly white rich people from the West. I understand that I am a relatively speaking rich white person from the West, but I don't like to self-segregate. The whole purpose of my company that I'm trying to build is predicated on the idea that we are all united through our common choices and experiences, at least the ones who have had the privilege to make the decision to move. And when we say expat, we're sequestering ourselves from the people who don't have as much agency as we do. I feel like that is problematic in a world where divisions between classes are growing and becoming quite contentious. Well, that's interesting. You know, we did an entire show about that where our guest refuted that exact notion, actually. As the world becomes more global, you're not seeing just the rich white people moving about. As you're saying, there's migrations going in every single direction and that more and more people of color are taking on the expat label. Yeah, I agree with that in, in, on a personal basis, but I would just refute that notion in terms of common media. I mean, no one calls the Mexican people who are crossing the U.S. border in search of work and getting rounded up by ICE or Border Patrol, no one calls them expats. No one, no media outlet would refer to them as expats. They are migrants or migrant laborers or migrant mm-hmm. workers. Yeah. But no one would call me a migrant. People call me expat. Why is that? It's because I'm rich and I'm white. Going back to your earlier point about being lonely and about trying to find this community, even though you have an experience with starting over in a new place, a little bit what I discovered when I moved to San Francisco was that, one, I realized pretty early on, as people know who listen to the show, that San Francisco didn't feel like it was quite the right spot for me. But also it was that if you're going to settle somewhere else again, the idea of putting down roots and starting again is kind of a daunting thing. At least it was for me. Do you think any of that is in play for you? I think absolutely. I mean, one of the freeing things about being, uh, you know, a migrant slash expat is that it's very freeing. No matter where you go, you're starting over. No one knows you there. Or if you're lucky, maybe one person knows you. You get to redefine yourself. Or rather, you get to let who you are define yourself for other people in a way that is quite pure. I experienced that in Beijing quite profoundly. I remember having a moment six months in where I realized, oh my God, I don't feel like I'm being a different kind of person with my friends as opposed to work, as opposed to with my family, which is what you kind of naturally do at home. I'm just me all the time. And it just works and it felt so liberating. And 
that kind of happens um, naturally when you move to a new place. While you were asking that question, I was thinking more along the fli- the physicality of moving. <laughs> we're still waiting for our stuff from China, like on a slow boat, literally. <laughs> and the act of physically creating a space for yourself, a home for yourself, the nesting process has been profoundly comforting for us. My wife met a friend and she came over. I wasn't there, but she told me that when this friend came over and saw the, you know, we'd bought a couple pieces of furniture, not a lot, but just a couple pieces and a couple of frames for some photos. And she came in and she said, oh my God, this house feels more like a home than any place I've been in in Bali. So many of the villas and the homes here are built to be Airbnb. So they're very hotel-ish. They're nice, but they don't feel like a home. But we're building a home, man. Like, we want to live here. And to have that reflected back at us by someone noticing was like, number one, it's working. (laughs) But number two, our process for moving to a place is to really move there. Like, we we do not approach being here as something that necessarily will be temporary, even though it might be. We process it as we're going to a place that will be our home while we're there. And we want to make it feel that way. That has felt good. It's been tough, but it's getting better. And meeting people was part of it. But also slowly making our house more of a home has been that way, too. It'll be great when our stuff from China gets here, because that's where a lot of our home stuff is. Yeah. You did have to go back to China to get some visa work done. And you've said at the time that it almost felt like you had gone back too early. Why is that? Wow. I, I don't know why. And... My wife and I talked about this, and we got real emotional. A question came up on Twitter. I was talking with some people, and there was a thread where someone asked, because I'm a China watcher. I know a lot about China because I live there, and I have need an outlet for all the stupid knowledge I have in my head. <laughs> and one of the China watchers asked, can you talk with your spouse about your China watching? You're focused on China for whatever reason. Can you talk about your spouse, your partner, about what's going on in China? And I'm really not able to because my wife gets very emotional. And we talked about how we feel and we feel so strongly there's grief that's happening. Everyone grieves change, whether it's good or bad. And we are really going through grief. And when it really hit me when I was back in Beijing, I'd been gone for about two months. And I went back for a visa run and to do some bureaucratic work. And I was talking with a Chinese friend of mine. And there was this there's this legal kerfuffle that my wife is involved in with uh, with a company and I found myself describing the situation to my Chinese friend and I was getting so mad about it I could feel it in my chest and I was like so emotional and I had to stop myself and I said wow I'm really getting worked up about this and I realized this whole thing makes China look bad and I was so pissed that this company was making China look bad (laughs) I was like why am I so worked up about China looking bad it's because I care about it Right. And I wasn't talking about the government or politics. I was just talking about the place, the place that I lived in, the place that that I grew up in. I, I came into myself in wasn't treating me the way I was treating it. You know, it wasn't showing me the same respect that I show it. And it really hurt me. And I realized that, man, I need to not be back in China for a while. I need some separation. It's like you broke up with a girlfriend and you cannot go for the booty call. You've got to <laughs> yeah. lose the phone number for a while. <laughs> All right. I have two more questions. One is actually much more political. Okay. Since everything in the news has been about the protests in China. Do you want to give us an insider look on that situation? 
Sure. Well, the protests in Hong Kong, people should understand a couple of things. In the media, you'll read a lot about how you know Hong Kong's a colony by the British, and you know there's historical reasons for it. The Brits never gave the Hong Kongers the the franchise, the right to vote, and one country, two systems, all this stuff. What it really comes down to is there's really a separation between rich and poor there, and there's also this thing that happened in uh, 2014 called the Umbrella Movement. So two factors. Number one, people are supposed to be able to vote for at least a certain number of legislators in their city council. They call it the um, Legislative Council. And they were denied the right to vote for the candidates they wanted to even though the candidates they wanted to vote for wouldn't occupy enough of the legislature to, to accomplish anything, they would at least be a, a block that would give voice to their demands in that legislature. So that set off the umbrella movement. And the crackdown on that several years ago kind of set a precedent for we're angry about the fact that China is encroaching on our rights that we're supposed to be able to hold on to till 2047. That's number one. Number two is the huge amount of wealth disparity. So people growing up in Hong Kong this last generation, since China has taken over, they've seen real estate values skyrocket. A lot of that is from Chinese money coming over the border, buying up apartment blocks, just like they do on the mainland. They're getting their money into Hong Kong, where it can then be washed and turned into foreign currency because you can exchange Chinese renminbi in Hong Kong. You can't do it in most other places. Chinese people sinking their money into real estate has driven up the price of housing there. So young people can't afford housing. So if you can't vote and you have no voice in the parliament that you're supposed to have voice in because you at least have nominal, if not democracy, at least some kind of representation, and you can't afford to live in your home, that's going to produce a lot of anger and angst. And if you understand that, you can kind of look at what's happening as a natural evolution. Like, of course, people are going to get pissed off. And then, of course, if nonviolent protests for years and years and years result in no action, of course, people are going to – like small groups of people are going to start acting out. And it's frustrating because you can see it happening in real time. The worst part is I can't do anything about it. Like I can, I can talk about it. I can try to educate people when they ask me. But I can't – do anything about it. And that's what's frustrating. Yeah. So totally separate question to end. Mm -hmm. You say that China, now that you've moved to Bali, you've moved on to the next the next thing, that China is like the lover you need to leave behind for at least a couple months so that you can get over it. Would you be the kind of person who, if six months down the road, one year down the road, you two are both feeling this sort of misery, would you pull the plug and go back? Or are you committed to Bali for two to three years, regardless of whatever comes? I think we're committed to Bali for at least two years. That's the kind of the commitment my wife made to the school that hired her. I'm also committed to trying to do a life. I mean, I needed a life change. Could that have happened in another city in China? Yes. But I'm committed to trying to build this business, trying to actualize this vision I have for creating a space where migrants and expats can come together and create culture. And I don't think I can do that in China. I started to do it. I think I need to be outside China to, to try it. Will we go back? You know, it's anything's possible. Will China be the first love that I always kind of look back on fondly but never re-engage with? That's possible too. I don't know. We could take the relationship metaphor in lots of different ways. But um, right now, we are still grieving 
the loss of China, the change from China, and we're still in a space where we think that it might be good to move back someday, but we don't know. Why could you not do what you wanted to do in that environment? I was too comfortable. Being comfortable is not the same as being happy. I learned that when I moved to China from the U.S. I was so comfortable, but I feel like I was asleep for about 10 years. I moved to China and I woke up. I was just living my life. I was content, but I was just comfortable. China was a challenge. China forced me to actualize myself in new and different ways within a different context. And that helped me be, be who I am. China, after you know nine or 10 years, was the same thing. I had my routine. I knew how to do things. I didn't have to work hard anymore. So it's comfortable. Um, I need to be uncomfortable for a while. That's great. So Mike Shaw, the business that he's starting, he's the CEO and managing editor of Migration Media and the host of the podcast Migratory Patterns, which I just appeared on. Yes. Right? Just recently, as we're airing this. Absolutely, yeah. Like I, last week. It was a great episode. I, was, I, was, I loved it. One of my favorites, actually. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me on. So go check out Migratory Patterns as a podcast. And thank you for joining us from Bali to talk about China. We'll have to have you back on, what, six months, nine months down the road and see how you're actually doing. Yeah. What's the mathematical? You have to, it takes you half the time you're with someone to go through the recovery process after breakup. So I guess I'll be okay in like five and a half years. Five and a half years. Yeah. (laughs) And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, subscribe to the show, and pledge your support at patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. And for goodness sake, interact with us on social media. Just search for the bittersweet life podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, send us a letter there too. Our logo is by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Talk to you next week. Bye.